actually rise for the scripture reading. <laughs> and we're going to be in Exodus chapter 33 through 34. Let's see, got a bookmarker here. Exodus 33, <clears throat> starting in verse 12. And it says, Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways, that I may know you so that I I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished? from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is such a rich section of your word that I'm just excited to open up and just dive deeper in and explore the great nature of your character, the very very nature of who you are and how you've displayed yourself to us in your written word by the Spirit of God that lives within each of us. I pray that he would open our eyes to see the truth that would convict our hearts and bring us further into your uh, image, that would further bring us to a desire to be in your presence always, and a vulnerability, God, as we are in your presence, to know that we are safe before you and that we can lay all things down at your feet knowing that you love us and that you care deeply for us. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, if you were here last week, you heard Charlie, I think, say three to four times how intense the next section of Matthew is. And it was so terrifying, I think, to him that he got on a plane and he left. And like Jonah, he just ran all the way to the furthest east of the states, to Jacksonville, uh, where he's actually preaching at another church uh, this week. And uh, so he'd asked me a couple months ago if I could fill in for him. It just happened to be right before that really intense section of Matthew. Um, so he's gone for a week, but then he'll be back next week. I'm excited to share a little bit about what God has laid on my heart this week and um, these last couple weeks, really, what, what he's really been putting on my heart. And I, I love teaching. Uh, it's, what I, it's what I do at His Hill Ranch Camp. <laughs> at Ranch Camp, I'm still in ranch camp mode. I'm the camp director there in the summer, and then uh, I'm one of the resident teachers during the Bible school. And I have a class starting with the first years tomorrow in the book of Exodus that starts from Exodus through Deuteronomy. And one of the things about teaching this class is that Charlie has given me 12 hours to go through four books of God's Word. It is a lot. <laughs> and there are many things in these four books that we just have to kind of cruise at 40,000 feet and just kind of look da- down and scan and peruse. And then there's some sections that we're able to kind of land the plane and, and get out. And I wish I could do that for all of it, uh, for, for all the sections that we, that we cover. Uh, but this is one that I've had to kind of go over somewhat quickly in classes, and I've always wanted to land the plane, get out and kind of explore kind of the richness of this section of 
Scripture. So just really in general here, first 19 chapters of Exodus, God is rescuing his people out of the authority of slavery, out of the authority of the Egyptians. He has done 10 incredible, miraculous events to allow the world to see, I am the one true God. Follow me. And by Moses' enabling, by God's power, he leads the people out. Then they come to chapter 19. And it's this incredible moment where there is thunder, there is lightning. God's presence descends on the mountain. Can you imagine? And the people, it says, tremble. That is such an intense verse as I read that. They see the glory of God descending before them. And God invites Moses to come up. Just Moses. He says, do not let the people come up. Right? This is uh, unholy people. I need to teach them who I am before we really get into this next section of the, really the rest of the Bible, and that is relationship. I have rescued them out of 400 years of slavery, idolatry and idol worship where they have been far from me. And now I need to create my people here at Mount Sinai. And so for approximately one year, the people camp. Before the mountain, Moses goes up. He receives what we call you know, the law, really the Ten Commandments. And you'll remember the first two of those commandments. Do not have any God besides me. And then the second, do not make any idol before me. And as God is saying that, what are the people doing at the base of the mountain? Making a golden molten cow. And they are circling it and worshiping it. It's one of the passages, I, I hope this isn't really heretical, but I, but I almost find it funny when you come and read it. It's just so classic, you know? It's like so, of course they would be doing the exact opposite of what God has literally just prescribed for this people before they enter a relationship with them. And the first, one of the first things they do in his presence is they fall on their face of sin and disobedience. And I always have to be careful when I read that section because it is so tempting to think, oh, you foolish Israelites, oh, you foolish Galatians, when I am so quick to do the same, having God's word before me and more than the Israelites, having God's spirit and his presence living within me. And how often do we fall into the temptation and sin of going against God's word, when we have it plainly in front of us and we know it. Things like, do not pursue wealth. And yet it's the first question we ask when we pursue a job. Do not gossip about one another. And yet we have to tell that one story about that one person that's just, you know, angering us just a little bit too much. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. And we create a world around me. These are all things that are just as the sin of Israel there in chapter 32 and the golden calf. And so Moses is back up on the mountain because God has struck the people down because of this. Moses has kind of like a really mad baseball player, I like to think, broken the uh, two tablets on his knee, just in anger and frustration when he comes down and sees the people that he was standing before God before as, as he's the mediator of. And, and so in frustration, uh, it's kind of where his spirit is at. The people of Israel say, go 
speak to God for us. And Moses, the end of, or kind of right in the middle of chapter 33, would go out to the tent, and there he would speak to God as a man would speak to a friend, face to face. It's this beautiful picture of, of God's presence there amongst the people, speaking to Moses, who is acting as a mediator for God and the people. And so Moses here in this section has just come before God after this great sin, Scripture calls it, the great sin of idolatry, to really struggle with God to understand what is this balance? What is this tension that you have, God, between disciplining sin and the justice that is true of your character, but also the reality that we need mercy and we are mortal, fallen people whom you have promised to redeem, rescue, and to bring into the land. How do these two things make sense in this tension here? There was a, a man when I was reading and kind of thinking about this and praying about this. Man, this man's name was Philip Brooks. He wrote a book called The Influence of Jesus. And I appreciated what he said about Moses at this point. He said, to be a true minister of men is always to accept happiness and distress. Both of them forever deepening and entering into closer and more inseparable union with each other. The more the profound our ministry becomes. The man who gives himself to another can never be wholly sad, but no more can that man be of unclouded gladness. So as Moses enters before God, I just want to just kind of paint this picture of where he's at. This is my goal in the first half of this, this section, is really to see the character of Moses as a mediator, as he is representing Christ as a mediator. And to see this as a man, though, the struggle of understanding the character of God that he has given himself to these people, God has made him a leader of these people, interceding for them. But these people, look what they just done, God. They've really messed up. And they really deserve to be wiped out. But the promise, what about the promise that you made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, that this is going to be your people, and your promise is true to your character. So, so how do these two things coexist this chapter, 30, the end of 33 into 34, I think, highlights one of the most heartbreaking moments of Moses' career. But in that heartbreak comes about, I think, some of, one of the best qualities of Moses comes out in this chapter right here. One of, the, one of the most beautiful pictures of Jesus is seen in him through a sorrowful moment such as this. And better, better than that, the best of God is brought out in a moment such as this. Both of these internally significant and, interestingly enough, starting from such a bad place. Bad, we'll call it. Such a great sin, we'll call it as that. So, let's look back in the text here. Verse 12, Moses comes to the Lord, and he's inquiring and he's interceding for them. He says, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know who you will send with me. Moreover, you have said to me, I have known you 
by name. And you also have found favor in my sight. Now I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways that I may know you so that I might find favor in your sight. How true that is. I want to start by saying this. You know, the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt with hundreds of gods that were worshipped. All man-made, all just made representing different things. And the, the, I guess you could say the worst part of idol worship or of pagan worship is that you never knew when that God was pleased. You never knew if your sacrifice was enough. You never knew if you, after giving what you gave, if you could walk away to say, is he going to strike me down or is he going to find favor with me? Was that good enough? Was that not good enough? Do I need to do more? Do I need to sacrifice more? You, you have no confidence. You have no security in that relationship with whatever that thing may be, that other person may be. But Moses highlights something here that is completely different in what is true of our God. And that is the absolute confidence and the security we have when we enter his presence simply with a heart that says, I just want to know you. That's it. You don't ask anything more from me. Psalm says, you know, it's not the, the sacrifice of a bull or a ram, but it's just a heart that is humble a heart that is broken, this is what pleases God. A heart that is desperate in its longing just to say, I want to know you as you know me. That's what he says. You, know, you have known my name, but I want to know your ways. That by knowing your ways, I may know you to a greater degree. That I might find favor in your sight. I think the language here that Moses comes to God is, is, is striking to me. Something I've been thinking a lot about probably over the last couple of years is just how we approach God. And I think what we see here is what the New Testament would call something like petition and supplication. That it is downright good, bad, and ugly. Just to call it like that. It is no bars held. It is everything is on the table. God, this is what is going on amongst your people. This is how I feel. This is your promise. And I'm just, I want to lay it all out before you so that I can understand what you are doing amongst us and so that I may know you as you know me. It's honest. It's real. He's not trying to package it in a nice, pretty package. You know, he's not apologizing for a word that he says and going back and making sure that it was theologically correct, right? How many times have we done that? Oh, sorry, God, that wasn't, maybe that wasn't right. Or oh, I didn't quote that verse right. Yeah, God just wants our heart. He wants the, the honest, brutal reality of where we are at before him. That's what he desires. Because that's what he sees. That's always what he has seen. And so we come before him as Moses does, does Honestly, he says, let me know your ways, that I may know you. 
reminiscent of what Paul says in Philippians. I count all things as loss just for the sake of knowing you. Just for the sake of knowing you. That is what life is, Christ, and knowing him. And we never graduate from that knowledge. That's never a degree, a certificate that we get this side of heaven and say, now I have known him in his entirety. I have graduated and I can go on to a different set of theology. I can go on and advance to a different set of now how God works. No, it is always about who God is, his character. We will never graduate from that knowledge. So this is the first thing that he prays for is for himself. As the mediator of these people, God, I want to know you as you know me. Because it is in your presence and it is the knowledge of your presence really that brings about transformation. It is the knowledge of your presence that will enable me to lead these people well. Earlier in this chapter, it would say that Moses would go, when he would, when he would go to the tent of meeting, all the people would watch him go, and they'd all nudge each other and say, let's follow. And so they'd all follow him, and they'd stand on the outside of the tent, you know, on their tiptoes looking over, and they would watch him go in because they knew when he would come out, his face would be shining. And they say, whoa, he was in the presence of God. And the presence of God had a literal effect on his face. His face was glowing there. Now, then he would, when he would come out, he'd have to put a veil over his face because ultimately the presence there, it faded. Old Testament. And Paul picks up on that in 2 Corinthians, right? And he says in chapter 3, now we all with unveiled face enter the presence of, a, of God, and it is the presence of God that shines and is the light of Christ that is being beheld in each of us. And so Moses knows this. He is the one that God has tapped to say, you are the mediator between these people. And he says, I cannot lead these people unless first and foremost, God, you are with me. I am nothing apart from your presence. Amen. But he goes on from that. And he says, more than that, or consider this as well, this nation, that they are your people. So it is not just I that needs your presence, but it is also this people that need to know that you are with us, God, that you have not forsaken us, that you are not against us, that you are not our enemy, but that you are our God, and that you remain true to your promises. This is a good mediator. Because he is not just concerned for himself. Right? A mediator is one who stands before two parties, representing each of them supposedly, objectively, equally, transparently, so that the other party may see one another clearly. Now, a not, a, a, a not very good mediator would see that maybe this two, these two parties are at odds and he wants to save his own face. Right? So he's going to get out of there making sure he's okay while the two parties remain at odds. But a good mediator stands between the two until both parties are reconciled here together. He says, I need to know your presence, but so does this nation. Because if this nation, if this people does not believe that you are with us, then they will see that your promise is void. And any promise from hereafter cannot be trusted. It cannot be wholly accepted because once you have gone back 
And therefore, there will always be doubt. There will always be the question, will he go back on us again? And so Moses, a good mediator, brings out the best of God. He seeks the glory of God. He says, remember your promises to these people. And God said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. But Moses says, no, no, it's not about me. He says, if your presence does not go with us, then do not lead us from here. This people needs you as well as myself. For how can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth? This is what God said. If you flip back with me to Exodus chapter 6, character, really the nature of God being revealed in this section before Moses goes to Egypt, starting in verse 6, he says, say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I also will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land which I swore to you, give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. This is what Moses is referencing. This point that God spoke to him, this promise that he gave to him and the nation, he is referencing this, remember, act on your promise, O God. And this delights God. As we enter his presence and we are seeking his face, not only for ourselves, but for the sake of one another, that we are praying his promises that would be true of one another. And that we would experience corporately the promises that God has given to us. That we would have eyes to see the promises that God has given to us. Because this people is distinguished from all the other nations. This people, they are different. Deuteronomy says in chapter 4, not because they're great, not because they were really powerful, not because they had the strongest army, not because they were going to have great kings. They were the weakest of the people. And because you loved them, that is why you promised to them. Remember your promises. That is what a good mediator does. He recognizes and he remembers the promises of God and stands in the gap for the other. So Moses has prayed for himself. He has prayed for the people, and in that, he has prayed that this people would be distinguished, set apart, and would have a place in the lives of all the other people in this world by being different. That all the nations of the world would see this people and would say, what's different about them? What's so unique about them is that their God is with them. 
is that the presence of God is amongst them. And we can literally see that. That is what is going to set these people apart. And this is what really struck me as I was reading this section. Something came to mind from another class that I taught. And this is, again, why I love teaching. Because there's so many things that you teach, that you see. And even nine years later, you say, oh, huh, that's funny. I've never seen that before. I was reading through this, and this section of Moses, as he's approaching God one-on-one, interceding for the people, reminds me of the prayer that Jesus gives in John 17. Right before he goes to the cross, Jesus is praying, the high priestly prayer, one-on-one, Jesus, the Father. It's this holy of holies that Scripture gives us insight into to see how God is communicating with himself. And Jesus' prayer, if we could just break it down into a, a very poor man's outline, breaks down into three sections. Praying that he himself would be true and represent the name of the Father well. Praying for himself. He prays for the disciples that are there with him in the second section. And then he prays that those who would come later, the people that would follow as well as the disciples, would represent the name of God well to this world. This is what makes Moses in this section such a beautiful picture and shadow of Jesus. Because thousands of years pre-Jesus, he is praying essentially the same prayer. That I would know you personally, that these people would know you as I walk amongst them, And that as your presence goes with us, we would have a place in the lives of others in this world. And truly be separate. And truly be different as you have always made us to be. To represent your name well in this world. That really struck me of the character of Moses. And we know Moses isn't perfect. Later on, he's not going to make it into the promised land. But there are highlights of his life that show us Jesus so beautifully how he enters God's presence. He enters it boldly. He enters the presence of God confidently. He enters it knowing that he is completely safe because the promise of God has been given to him. And therefore, he is able to lay out his prayer and supplication. But as a good mediator, he knows in the presence of God, it's not just about me. It is also remembering the promises of God for this people so that we, as the people of God, would be different. That we would truly have a distinction. And not just a cheap imitation, but a difference. From the rest of the people that are in this world. That our faces would shine. Because the presence of God lives in, not just me personally, but the presence of God is here in this room, amongst this church, amongst us corporately, as a body, and that we as Christians in this world will have a place in this world in our representation of who God is. What makes these people, what makes you so different than the rest of this world? That the presence of God lives in you. No other religion claims that because no other religion has that as its very reality except for us in Christ. I think this exchange prompts 
the boldness of Moses to go one step further. I don't really know if this is if this was okay, you know, no commentary really said anything on it, but he goes one step further in verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, I also will do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Man. What a proclamation. If there is an ambitious statement made in the Bible, that's it. He has just laid out his heart before God, and God did not strike him down. Moses knew he was safe in the presence of God, and he goes one step further and says, show me your glory. After God has says, I will do what you have requested. I will remember the promise that I have given, as he always would, and as he always has. I will be faithful to who I am. Show me your glory. And God allows it. He goes on and he says, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, but you cannot see my face for no man can see my face and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Show me your glory. Again, bigger context here. God, show me how you are able to be the God of this people who, are, who is obstinate, stubborn, that keep failing, and yet the God of the promise to be with these people and to bring them in, to continue to work through them. Show me your glory. Show me how this is possible. And God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I think that's a beautiful adjective to give of God's presence. My goodness. My goodness in my justice, but also my goodness in my mercy and grace. I will show how this is going to be accomplished in my character. But this is so powerful. God is so entirely holy, perfect, unique, perfectly good, that mortal man cannot just purely stand before him. I always give the example, it's like the sun. The sun is not bad. The sun is not evil. But if a spaceship got too close to the sun, what happens? It gets destroyed. Not because the sun is bad, but it's so powerful. It's so intense, right, that you cannot approach it in an unhealthy way. God says, there is a way which you can approach me. There is a way which you can see me and you can know me. But there's a way that I'm going to set the boundaries for so that you will not die because I am holy, completely different before you. And so he hides him in the cleft of the rock. God allows his glory to pass before him, his goodness to pass before him. And we, we pick that up, uh, chapter 34, verse 6. This is what he proclaims as he passes by the cleft of the rock where Moses is. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps his loving kindness for thousands, and who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children on the, on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. This is one of the most repeated verses in all the Bible, over 20 times. This verse, in verse 6, is repeated both Old Testament and in the New Testament. The Lord. The Lord. And then five descriptions of his character are given. He is compassionate. He is gracious. Slow to anger. Loving, filled with loving kindness. Abounding in loving kindness. Exceeding in love. The fourth, and truth, also translated faithful. This is who I am. Now, in that section, in that proclamation of who he is, he is also addressing, in verses 6 and 7, how he is going to hold this tension, as only God can do. This tension of sin, justice, and mediating for the sin, while also giving grace and mercy to this people. He says, I will remember the sin. I, he says in verse 7, by no means leave the guilty unpunished unto the third and fourth generation. So there will be recompense for what is so. But before that, what did he say about his loving kindness, justice, or his loving kindness, his compassion, his grace? He says, I will show that for thousands. The third and fourth generation is nothing compared to the thousandth generation that God will give. So yes, he will deal with sin. Yes, it will have its consequences. Yes, at times it will make God's people have to take a left turn when they should have gone straight, a.k.a. the wandering wilderness for 40 years. But his purposes will be accomplished. As Job says, nothing can thwart the purposes of God. He will be true to his promises. That will be unchanging unto the thousandth generation. What I want to end on is, a, is something I've been chewing on as a parent, having now three children. In three years, so much has been questioned. <laughs> so many questions have been asked between Jewel and I. And so much has been seen, and so much is on our plate. It's like going down to, uh, what's that What's that place, downtown San Antonio, and sitting before that massive cinnamon roll? You know, it's like, how do you fully conquer this? You know, like, how do you digest all this that's about to happen. So we're just bite by bite kind of taking in what it means to parent, what it means to disciple, what it means to parent and disciple at the same time and, and then have camp of campers. But one thing I am, I am noticing so much in learning is that just in child psychology and, and development, for, for, the, for the maximum or the full potential of growth psychologically, emotionally and spiritually, a child 
needs to feel safe amongst his parents. If a child does not feel safe, there is a, a world of different roads and options that will result as consequences of that, either of selfishness, isolation, self-destruction. Um, in psychology, there's a lot of different roads that can go down. One of the primary goals we have as a parent and that I have as a teacher and I have as a camp director is to create a community and cultivate a place of safety for my children in my home, for the people in my office, and for the kids at our camp. Because I know when kids at our camp, I've seen this so clearly, when kids come to our camp and they feel safe, and they look around and they see our counselors just dancing for mail, dancing for bills that they get, that's what we make them do, and they're like, and they can dance and not care because Jesus loves them. They feel safe. I can be myself. I can be myself and not care what people think about me. Now God has the chance to begin to work in that safety because then it's created vulnerability. We can be vulnerable. When we feel safe, we are vulnerable. And that is the heart that God sees and cares for. It's the heart that is vulnerable before him, the heart that is broken before him, that really lays it out like it is. And it says, this is all I desire. And you are safe in my presence. We can approach God when we have fallen, when we have sinned. And we know that we can enter his presence and that there is forgiveness. It's an absolute. And we, we can do a lot of different things to try to build that on our own. Sometimes we think, oh, I need to like wait a week before I pray. I've, I just, I've messed up so bad. I can't enter God's presence now. And so we wait a week or we fill our life with a lot of good things that we could try to do to say, I'm going to atone for my own sin and at least do half the work before I can get back into God's presence. Or just, as Adam did, we just flee. We just run. And we believe, that, we believe the lie that God can't be with us because of our sin. And all those things are lies. What God's desire is what Moses' desire is. To seek his face, to say, God, you know I have sinned. You know I have fallen short. You know I have failed. Would you show me your glory? And how you are going to discipline, refine, and correct me in my life where I have erred, but to also know that, God, in your presence, I'm completely safe. I am completely safe here. I'm not going to get struck down. There is no wrath for those there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so we can immediately enter the presence of God and we find a God who is compassionate, a God who is gracious, a God who is slow to anger, who is abounding in love, and who is faithful. And in his presence and in that safety, we can say, God, I am I'm falling. I have believed lies. I have lied. I have fallen short. Would you show me your glory? And God says, I will, because it's my promise. Absolutely. It's just your presence that I seek, just as I have sought yours. I pray this would be our heart, 
that we've seen Moses in this section as a good and faithful mediator, as just a shadow of the one that we have in Christ, who stands before us, ever pleading for us, faithful on our behalf, before us, interceding, praying for us, as Romans says, when sometimes we have no words to say before God. Jesus stands and sees us and intercedes for us. But also, when we fall, and when we fall short, that we as Moses, for the people, would enter the presence of God with confidence, not because we are worth anything, with confidence because God has made such a great promise to us. He is the great one. And we enter his promise with complete security. And from that place of security, vulnerability. And from that place of vulnerability, we can see now the great promises and the great glory of God and allow that to transform us in his presence to really change us further into his image. Let's pray. Father, you know how much I have just enjoyed this section of Scripture and just really scratching the surface of really what has been beheld here. And God, we know we, it is to our advantage, God, that you have gone away and you are seated at the right hand of the Father because now the Spirit of God, he lives in us, reproving us of sin, correcting us, of sin, reminding us of what you have said and what is true of who you are, revealing to us in a greater and deeper way words that we have read before, promises that we've seen before, and showing us how we can apply them in a fuller, bigger way, even than what we even thought imaginable. God, I pray that we have seen your glory, not just by your word and how Moses has seen you, but that we have seen your glory by seeing the face of Christ each one of us, in our own lives, in our own hearts. God, that we've beheld you and that it is your presence that is transforming us into your image. And it is your image that truly satisfies our hearts. I pray that is true for each one of us today. And I pray that transformation continues to happen unhindered in our, in our lives by obedience and just by sheer trust, God, as we enter your presence, that you are good, compassionate, faithful, abounding in loving kindness and grace. And God, this is our desire to see you as that, to know you as that, and to represent you in our world as that truth. In your name we pray. Amen.